Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we continue our Christmas series, The Word Became Flesh today, with a message entitled, Overshadowed by Jesus. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Many people have spoken about John the Baptist's humility. Well, that's because it has to be admitted that it's especially hard on the ego to see one's own success in ministry being diminished by someone else. You know, I recently read an article that was entitled, Five Reasons Why Some People Are More Successful Than Others. And the five reasons were, number one, they have a strong grit and stamina. Two, they are emotionally intelligent. Uh, Three, they know their desired outcomes and needed action steps. And four, they have an unwavering focus bubble. And five, they value and nurture relationships. So if you can do those five things, your success is going to be better than those who don't. And on the other hand, if you don't do those five things, well, you're probably not going to be successful. So there you have it, the five ingredients to success. Well, I got intrigued and I saw another article by that very same title, Five Reasons People Are Successful. So in the second article, the five reasons were, number one, they don't give up. Number two, they value their time. Number three, they're willing to live with discomfort. Number four, they take action. And number five, they don't get influenced by the opinions of others. Well, there you have it again. And I'm sure there are a lot of other top five reasons why successful people are doing things better than those who aren't successful. And I don't want to argue the merits or the lack of them in these articles that I read. I have my own feelings about where these articles hit the target and where they come up short. So, for instance, see, I would argue that successful people are keenly aware of their own gifts and abilities And then they surround themselves with people who fill in where they're weak. I mean, that kind of a thing. But, you know, all of that's beside the point. The reason I raise this is because you really can't live in our culture without being bombarded by these kinds of articles and books and online resources, television interviews. See, successful people, that's how we're told, simply do things better than you do them. That is, if you're not one of the successful people or maybe you're just moderately successful. But if you pay attention, there is a self-help guru out there just for you who can train you to be successful beyond your wildest dreams. And also, if you're not successful, well, think about it. You have only yourself to blame because that's because all the resources that you need are out there. And so if you're not successful in a given field of endeavor, you should smarten up. You should start reading the success literature. Now, look, if you're running a business and you don't have a plan to succeed and you don't have realistic and measurable goals and you don't work hard, let's say you're not focused, most likely you're not going to succeed. And that being said, see, there's a dimension in all of that. There's something that's missing. See, for the believer in Jesus, if you don't see this added dimension, it's going to deeply harm your faith. I'm speaking about the plans of God for your life. You see, there was a time when one of the wealthiest men in the world lost all of his wealth and his children in a single day. He went from success to lacking it. His name was Job. And finally, his health was taken from him. And this, according to the scripture, was according to the plans of God. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. 
The plans of God for your life outweighs all your skill and efforts. Or listen to James chapter 4, 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, there's the key. If the Lord wills. Previous generations of Christians always added a little phrase behind all of their future plans. They'd say, see you tomorrow, God willing. Or I'm going to make plans to take medical training, God willing. See, plans, either small or great, were always seen through the lens of God's purposes being outworked in their lives. See, there was a time when one of the most effective preachers and evangelists in the history of Israel saw another ministry basically steal away all of his followers so that his meetings became smaller and smaller all the time. Success, at least from a worldly perspective, was leaving him. And with each loss and each diminishment of his ministry, he became, listen to this, he became increasingly happy for he knew he was succeeding. Of course, I'm speaking about John the Baptist. You see, in the case of John the Baptist, there was perspective that he constantly kept. When he saw the greatness of Jesus, John the Baptist lost all fascination in his own greatness or his own success story. He couldn't see anything outside of the glory of the one who is the joy of the earth. If at least this is how John the Baptist must have thought, if Jesus became bigger and bigger, that one thing alone was more than enough for him. That was the measure of his success, and it should be the measure of ours as well. See, I do think that it's very important at Christmas time. See, whether you identify with the blue-collar shepherds or the kings of the East, once having realized that Christmas means that God is among us, that he's clothed in human flesh, well, once you see that, I mean, once you really see that, you're going to stop being interested in your own greatness. You're not going to be like Herod the Great who felt threatened by the prospect of a great king. You rather feel that the entrance of a great king into the world makes the rest of us merely his servants and you're delighted. See, that's where we're headed in today's sermon. As you may already know, this Christmas, we're studying the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And so today I'm reading from John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now I'm struck at the very outset of reading this passage that what John said about Jesus had such an immediate impact on his ministry. Every time he spoke in such glowing terms about Jesus, well, people kept leaving his revival meetings and they kept going over to Jesus. And of course, how could it be any other? I mean, you only have to imagine a pastor of a local church who's constantly speaking about the pastor of another local church. Let's say it's across the street. 
You know, every Sunday, this pastor says about that other pastor, he's so much greater than I am. Well, the longer he goes on that way, the more he's going to be harming his own ministry and building up that other man's ministry. See things from John the Baptist's perspective. But before we look at that part of the story, let's make sure we understand what it is that John the Baptist actually said about Jesus. So notice, please, that John the Baptist said he didn't know him. Well, that's found in verse 31. You should know that from Luke's gospel, that John did in fact know who Jesus was. I mean, after all, Jesus was John's cousin. Luke 1 verse 18 indicates that Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were relatives. Luke tells us that Elizabeth was along in her pregnancy when she was visited by Mary. And when Mary enters her home and greets Elizabeth, well, immediately Elizabeth feels the baby leaping in her womb. And we're left to understand that since John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, that the Holy Spirit was rejoicing at the conception of the Savior of the world, even while John, who's yet an unborn child, could hardly have been aware of what was going on. But John's mother seems to understand, at least to some degree, the significance of Mary's pregnancy. Luke 1 verse 43 records Elizabeth as saying, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, Elizabeth instantly recognizes that Mary's child is her Lord, and in consequence of that, Mary, inspired by the Holy Spirit, magnifies the Lord and says she, she rejoices in God my Savior. Now, while all of this is necessary background, John the Baptist and Jesus know each other from childhood. And it's also true that John the Baptist couldn't say with certainty whether or not his cousin Jesus was actually the long-expected Messiah. See, he simply didn't know. He didn't recognize Jesus as such. And that is, he didn't recognize him until the day he was baptizing and Jesus came to be baptized as well. And you'll remember that at first, John tried to hinder him. He didn't see in Jesus the same sins he saw in others. But as Jesus came out of the water, John heard a voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he saw the Holy Spirit rest on him. And in that instant, John knew exactly what success looked like. John knew he existed to make Jesus look good. Two thousand seventeen has been an incredible year of ministry. New ministries launched, like Truth and Life Today, with Dr. John Newfeld discussing current events, questions of life and faith, and the Bible. Back to the Bible, kids now thousands of children engaging with the Bible and memorizing Scripture. A new radio initiative just launched in India, broadcasting the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld to millions across India, the Middle East, and China. Just a few new initiatives that multiply the impact of the daily Bible teaching program of our young adult ministry in doubt and laugh again. As we celebrate the Christmas season, we're praying people like you from across Canada will step forward and support these ministries with a generous gift toward our year-end ministry goal of $400,000. These funds are critical as we move into a new year. Would you call with your year-end gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. John 1.29 records the words of John the Baptist. The passage begins with the words, the next day. 
See, that probably refers to the day after John the Baptist had encountered a delegation from the Jewish religious establishment. So you remember that they had wanted to know who John was. Was he the Messiah? And you'll also remember that he had adamantly denied it. So the next day, the day after that dramatic encounter, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him. Now, from the way in which the account of the Gospel of John the Apostle reads, now we have to assume that Jesus must have been baptized sometime before that. And as John the Baptist watches Jesus coming toward him on on that particular day, he says to his own disciples who are with him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you think about that within the context of the time period in which John the Baptist said it, this seems like somewhat of a mysterious title. I mean, you might think ahead. I mean, fast forward into John the Baptist's future and remember Matthew 11, verse 3. John the Baptist is then in prison, and you'll remember he's about to be executed. But as he's languishing in prison, he's seized by doubts. He sends his disciples to Jesus and asks him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And in response, Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist that they are to go back and report all the accounts of Christ's miracles. See, it's often been asked, why was John the Baptist doubting? And I think the answer should be obvious. John the Baptist is in prison and he had expected that the Messiah would come and defeat the forces of evil. So the idea of a Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world, that's, that's a phrase that comes directly from Isaiah chapter 53. It's the song of the suffering servant who, who dies for our sins. Well, I'm just not sure that John the Baptist fully understood how all of this works together. And yet getting back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist at that early date identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did he know about Jesus? You know, Dr. D.A. Carson thinks it is possible that John the Baptist may have had in mind some of the apocalyptic Jewish writings of his day, which speaks of the Messiah as a warrior lamb. Now, that might be what he's thinking. The Messiah is a great warrior who defeats his enemies, but he will also forgive all those who repent of their sins and bear them away. Now, I think that the Baptist probably didn't know how the Messiah would forgive sins, but he did believe that he would. And having said that, John the Baptist, no doubt, did know Isaiah 53, where the prophet speaks of the servant of the Lord being slaughtered like a lamb, and that this was done for our sins. So even if John the Baptist hadn't put all the pieces together, He did know that Jesus was the Messiah. He did know that he was a conqueror. He did know that he was the Lamb of God. And he did know that he would forgive people of their sins. And those facts were the facts that he knew. At any rate, John is completely convinced shortly after Jesus is baptized that that this is the Messiah. And, And for that reason, this is why John knows that Jesus outranks him. You see, in John's world, there was definitely an understanding of rank, of God putting people into positions that he had determined in advance for them. And therefore, no matter how great John had become, John always kept in mind the idea that his cousin was more than his cousin. His cousin was the long-expected Messiah. For that reason, he was completely free of any sense of competition or feelings of jealousy or envy. The minute he baptized Jesus, 
John's eyes were open and he never doubted that this man outranks me. See, more so, John adds one more item to the list. In verse 34, he says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And that, dear friends, is quite a statement. Now, I do know that there is some manuscript evidence that John might have said, this is the one who is chosen of God or the elect one of God. But however John said it, John was under no illusions. When Jesus entered onto the stage, John the Baptist bowed his head and gladly gave up all his successes to Jesus. And there is at this point an important point of application for all of us. It has to do with our idea of success and and an understanding that success is in God's hands and it's not in ours. So let's understand what we should mean when we speak about success. The person who's successful is not the person who expands his or her business and becomes wealthy and is viewed with a sense of awe by everyone else. Rather, the person who is successful is the person who knows who he or she is, that is, who God has made them to be. We try to restate that. If you understand how God fashioned you and how he fit you into his eternal purposes, well, you're on the pathway to success. John knew who he was. He never doubted it. But you might be tempted to say, yeah, but I have no such clear role for myself. You know, I'm just a teacher or a plumber or a real estate salesperson, a homemaker, a mechanic, a doctor. I'm not the forerunner of the Messiah. But still, there are some things that you must learn from John. First, John knew that he was not the Christ. And just like John, you have to learn that lesson. Listen, Bubba, you're not the Messiah. You're not the savior of the world. You don't walk on water, except that about yourself. Second, John the Baptist also knew he didn't think that he personally was great. And we shouldn't think that about ourselves either. See, John didn't even think he had an Elijah ministry, and and we should be the same. Don't think of yourself as great in the traditional sense. King David said that it was better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's far better to assume humility than to be exalted. Think about that. A third thing we should learn from John the Baptist is that we should understand our God-assigned role in life. John found his ministry when he examined Isaiah. He knew that he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I'm assuming that none of us has so significant of a role, but I'm also assuming that we should see how our maker has fashioned and shaped us, and we should learn to see our unique gifts as having been given to us from God, and so we should learn to be content with the role that God has assigned for us. And finally, from John the Baptist, we need to believe that Jesus is vastly superior to everything that we could accomplish for ourselves, including the fulfillment of our own dreams. See, from this, I have a Christmas assignment. Get to the manger this Christmas and realize that this is God come to us in human flesh. This child is God himself come to us, tabernacled among us. This one will one day rule the world. If you and I could ever get our heads into that space, then we would know that Jesus deserves unquestioning loyalty, that we're not worthy even to untie his sandals, that we're not worthy even to be mentioned next to Jesus. And yet, we've been invited to be called the brothers and the sisters of Jesus, to imitate him and to be his representatives in the world. We should learn to be content with that 
we would realize that the best life has to offer is to be identified with this one. You know, all of what I've said has everything in the world to do with whether or not we can see Jesus for who he really is. See, I'm convinced that so many of us have only a vague and foggy picture of Jesus. We've seen enough to attract us to him, but not enough to change us. See, I'm convinced that there are so many, even Christians, who never clearly see this. And that's why we settle for second best. That's why we settle for a good job and making good money and having a good retirement package and maybe a nice home and a nice car and a few toys along the way. And so we seek like the rest to live as long and as comfortably as we can. And all that's fine, except we have this vague sense that something is missing. And because we think something is missing, we try to seek our own greatness. Listen, something is missing. What's missing is a vision of the splendor of God come to us in human flesh. What's missing is a vision of the greatness of Jesus, a greatness that is so vast that our own greatness is eclipsed by that one thing. It was William Carey, the great missionary to India, whose, whose ministry transformed Christian missions to India, but also Christian missions to the world. Carey, known as the father of modern missions. You know, in order to support himself, Carey trained himself by repairing shoes. And on one occasion, he was sitting at a table and he heard a British general say, Carey is only a shoemaker. And when Carey heard it, he interjected and said, no, sir, not a shoemaker, only a cobbler. See, that's a man who stopped caring about his own greatness, for he had seen the glory of Christ. May we see the same at this Christmas season. John, I'm so impressed that, uh, that John the Baptist could have this perspective of Jesus. But I'm wondering, as the Christ child, as the baby in the manger, help us understand how we can get a different perspective of him being more than just this vulnerable little baby. Yeah, and he surely is that because, I mean, Paul gives us that in Philippians 2 when you think about that wonderful hymn about how he humbled himself to the point of death. So we do, even at his birth, see this humiliation of Christ uh, being found in human form. But while that happens, I mean, the Apostle John wants to make sure that we never forget that this one is, in fact, God come to us. And so we must never lose the perspective of the grandeur of that moment, God come to us. Once we see that, I think that should strip us uh, of all these uh, ideas of, of my own personal success and be wrapped in him. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. John 1.12 really does epitomize the heart and the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. We teach the Bible, but for a reason. We teach the Bible so that those who hear might receive and believe in our Lord Jesus. That is our earnest prayer, that those who hear this program on radio, podcast, mobile app, or read Truth in Life magazine, or, or watch Truth in Life today, young people who listen to In Doubt, or the many who tune in to laugh again, that you would be encouraged in your faith and the light of Christmas that is the Christ child would burn so brightly that all those around you could not help but see him and be drawn to him. 
on behalf of Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, Isaac Dagno, and the entire ministry team, a sincere Merry Christmas to you and yours.